I Take History with My Coffee podcast, Episode 4, The Monsoon Marketplace. Thence we traveled to the town of Calicup, which is one of the chief ports in Mulebar. It is visited by men from China, Jawa, Ceylon, the Maldives, Al-Yaman, and Pars, and in it gather merchants from all quarters. Its harbor is one of the largest in the world. The Travels of Ibn Battutu, A.D. 1325 to 1354. Welcome to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast. The word monsoon came into the English language first from the Dutch word mousen. The Dutch got it from the Portuguese mansau. The Portuguese themselves derived the word from the Arabic mousem, which loosely translates to mean season. The word was used to describe the seasonal shifts in the prevailing winds that occur across the Indian Ocean. From June to September, the winds prevail from the southwest. They come up from the Indian Ocean toward the Indian subcontinent. This is the southwest monsoon. When these winds reach the southernmost tip of India, they split into two branches, the Arabian Sea branch and the Bay of Bengal branch. These winds pick up moisture from these large, warm bodies of water. The Western Ghats and the Himalayas help wring this moisture out of the atmosphere as the air is lifted over the higher terrains. The rains are highly anticipated and welcomed by the Indian people. Rain means survival. It is necessary for agriculture, water catchment, and wild animals and plants. Sometime in October, the wind pattern shifts. The winds now prevail out of the northeast, coming down out of mainland Asia towards the Indian Ocean. These winds bring with them very little rain, and when it does rain, it is limited to small regions of the subcontinent. This is the northeast monsoon. The monsoon winds would be the driving force behind a vibrant international trade network that had developed centuries before the Portuguese arrived on the shores of India. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence that this complicated web of trade grew from early regional networks. Around 3000 BCE, traders moved between ports along the coastline between Arabia and India in small canoes or rafts. Millet and sorghum from East Africa became part of the cuisine of the Harappan civilization of Pakistan and North India around about 2000 BCE. From at least the 2nd century BCE, the Arabs dominated the western section of the trading routes from Africa to India. They traded spices, teakwood, rosewood, and ivory. 
these items were highly prized in the West during both the Hellenic and Roman periods. These Arab merchants sold goods to Jewish traders in the port of Aden, and these traders then brought goods to Egypt to be exchanged throughout the Mediterranean world. On the eastern side, evidence show that Indian merchants traveled extensively throughout Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Written in the mid-first century CE, the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea provides a detailed description of trade routes and commercial centers along the Indian Ocean. A Periplus is essentially a logbook kept to record routes and the commercial, political, and ethnic details of the ports visited. Before the extensive use of maps, the Periplus served as both navigational guidebook and travel handbook. This particular Periplus started in the Roman-Egyptian port of Berenice, on the western shore of the Red Sea. It describes ports not only on the coast of the Red Sea, but also along the Horn of Africa, the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Sea, and the Indian Ocean. Further east included modern Pakistan and many of the southwestern regions of India. Quote, Sailing through the mouth of the Gulf, after a six days course, there is another market town of Persia called Amana. To both of these market towns, large vessels are regularly sent from Baragaza, loaded with copper and sandalwood and timbers of teakwood and logs of blackwood and ebony. To Omana, frankincense is also brought from Cana, and from Omana to Arabia, boats sewed together after the fashion of the place. These are known as Madarada. From each of these market towns, they are exported to Baragaza and also to Arabia, many pearls, but inferior to those of India. Purple, clothing after the fashion of the place, wine, a great quantity of dates, gold, and slaves. End quote. The Periplus also mentions that a certain Greek navigator, Hippolys, discovered a direct sailing route across the open ocean from the Red Sea to India. Pliny the Elder claimed that the same Hippolys discovered the monsoon winds. Of course, this is unlikely, as sailors from southern Arabia and India crossed the Indian Ocean and were familiar with these seasonal shifts in wind patterns. The confusion is a result of the fact that the Greeks believed that the Indian coastline ran east to west. It is more likely that Hippolys realized, perhaps in listening to Arab traders, that the western coast of India ran north to south. With this knowledge, he determined that crossing open water was the faster route to take. In any event, it was significant in that it changed the dynamics of the Indian Ocean trade. The Greeks and Romans were now able to trade directly with India and compete with the Arabs who had so far dominated the regional trade networks. This contributed to the increase in prosperity for Roman Egypt as large ships crisscrossed the Indian Ocean from Berenice 
to ports in southern India. Since the Qin dynasty of the 2nd century BCE, the Chinese took advantage of monsoon winds and knowledge of stellar navigation to sail to the Japanese islands, the Korean peninsula, and Vietnam. Later, while the Greeks, Romans, and Arabs were making their way across the Indian Ocean from the west, the Han dynasty was actively seeking foreign trade. As of the 1st century CE, the southern coast of China was the center of silk production and shipbuilding, and the region became central to establishing overseas markets. This enabled the Chinese, through India, to gain access to Roman markets that desired silk and other commodities. These trade networks were important for more than just moving goods. Ideas and religions also spread easily along the same trading routes. The maritime routes were critical to the spread of Buddhism, Confucianism, and later on, Islam and Christianity. The collapse of the Roman Empire in the West altered the balance of trade throughout the region. With the emergence of Islamic kingdoms, stretching from North Africa to Central Asia in the 7th century CE, the West was essentially isolated from the direct contact with India, China, and Southeast Asia. Throughout the medieval period, a succession of Arab and other Muslim states would dominate the western Indian Ocean from southwestern India to along the eastern coastline of Africa. By the 15th century, three powerful Muslim empires held a virtual monopoly on commodities heading into Europe. The Ottoman Empire occupied the territory of the former Byzantine Empire. The Ottomans controlled the Red Sea and access into the eastern Mediterranean Sea. The major port for the Ottomans was Aden, situated at the eastern approach to the Red Sea on the coast of present-day Yemen. Aden had been an active trading port since antiquity, and the Ottomans developed it into a well-fortified seaport. All goods from the east arrived here for shipment into Egypt to be traded with the Venetians and Genoese, and eventually the rest of Europe. The Safavid dynasty of Persia controlled access to the Persian Gulf, and their main port was at Hormuz. At the other end, the Mughal Empire controlled vast areas of northern India and central Asia. But much of India remained a patchwork of Muslim sultanates and Hindu principalities. And all through the medieval period, a number of independent states rose and disappeared. Despite the fluctuating political and religious climate, several port cities along the western coast of India flourished. Cambay, Goa, Calicut, to name just a few. After a period of turmoil, following the demise of the Han Dynasty, the Chinese began to revitalize commercial interactions throughout the South China Sea region. 
starting with the Tang Dynasty in the 6th century CE, Chenzhou, across from Taiwan, emerged as a major hub for maritime trade. It would become China's largest port during the medieval period. At this time, the silk industry, mining, ceramics, papermaking, tea, and a number of other industries were thriving and prosperous. This meant a substantial export trade to many areas of Asia and Africa, via both overland and maritime routes. Malacca, situated on the Malay Peninsula at the narrowest part of the Straits of Malacca, was another major trading port. Due to its geographic position, the city linked the east-west trade routes between the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. Traders from across the region converged upon the port to trade pepper, cinnamon, nutmeg, and other spices and commodities. Like many of the other trading centers, Malacca would develop a diverse international community of people, languages, and religions. In general, traders journeyed only as far as a monsoon trip from their home port. Greeks, Romans, and Arabs went as far as western India. Indians traveled between the mouth of the Red Sea and the Malay archipelago. Chinese merchants went as far as Sri Lanka. There were exceptions, such as the Chinese community in Baghdad and the Arab community in Chenzhou. Merchants of many languages haggled and bartered as they traded gold, ivory, spice, silk, frankincense, teakwood, and a host of other commodities. From Aden to Chenzhou, these goods were exchanged and handled by a multitude of merchants until they reached their final destination. As they waited for the seasonal shift in the winds to make the homeward journey, many of these merchants settled in the towns they traded in. They established routes and made connections with the local community. From at least the 11th century, merchants in southern India began organizing into trade guilds. One such guild, the Ajuvanam, was comprised of Jews, Muslims, Christians, and Parsis. The Anjuvanam operated mainly along the Malabar and Coromandel coast of southwestern India. Other guilds had contacts with the interior regions of India. Many of these guilds gained power and influence, as if they were independent states. They financed construction of temples, lent money to rulers of various kingdoms, garnered special privileges, and conducted their own foreign affairs. They all were important conduits for the export and import of goods, religions, and culture. By the 14th century, Chenzhou had links to hundreds of ports, such as Madras, India, Saraf, Iran, Muscat, Oman, and Zanzibar on the East African coast. Beginning in the 10th century, the Chinese planted Yerathrina variegata, also known as the Indian coral tree, 
or tiger's claw tree at the entrance of the harbor. The bright red flowers were meant to impress foreign sailors. The Chinese called the plant Zaytong, and the Arabs then nicknamed the city Zaytong, which came to English as Canton. Chenzhou was one of the largest and busiest ports in the world at the time. It was one of the most cosmopolitan as well. The Venetian traveler Marco Polo, in the 1280s, estimated that 10% of the Chinese emperor's revenue came from tariffs on the commerce coming in and out of Chenzhou. He would call the port one of the greatest havens in the world of commerce and the Alexandria of the East. He further describes, quote, that for one pepper ship that goes to Alexandria or elsewhere to pick up pepper for export to Christendom, this port is visited by a hundred. For you should know that it is one of the two ports in the world to which most merchandise comes. End quote. Likewise, the Muslim traveler Ibinan Batatu visited the city a couple of decades later in the 14th century. Chen Zhao's harbor, he says, quote, is among the biggest in the world, or rather is the biggest. I have seen about a hundred big junks there and innumerable little ones. It is a great gulf of the sea which runs inland until it mingles with the great river. End quote. In 1987, divers discovered a rare find in the waters between Hong Kong and Hailing Island in the South China Sea. They came upon a 100-foot Chinese junk dated to the 12th century and the Southern Song Dynasty. Having lost control of northern China earlier in the 12th century, the Song emperors fled south to set up their capital at what is now Hangzhou. Cut off from the overland trade routes, the Southern Song focused on maritime trade. The discovery of this merchant ship provided archaeologists with a window into the past. What was amazing was the fact that the cargo hold still held all its contents, meaning the ship had just departed on its voyage. The ship was dubbed Nanhe No. 1. The six feet of silt preserved the wood hull and the cargo contents of porcelain, coins, and bars of silver. It took two decades to develop the necessary technology to raise the ship off the ocean floor. In 2007, the remains of the ship were transferred to a museum on Hailing Island. Here, the ship rests in a special saltwater tank, which recreates the conditions in which the wreck was discovered. Archaeologists have slowly recovered many of the artifacts, a majority of which were a variety of different ceramic wares. These ceramics were known to be in high demand throughout Southeast Asia. One ceramic jar bears a manufacturer's inscription that dates its production to 1183 CE.
the vibrant trade centered on the Indian Ocean is often overlooked. It is overshadowed by the romance of the overland routes, known as the Silk Roads. Indeed, the maritime routes are often referred to as the Maritime Silk Roads. Yet this underestimates the importance of the region. Overland caravans were costly and limited the amount of goods that could be transported. These overland routes covered vast distances, and commerce was subject to an ever-changing array of states. Caravans were hard to defend against the raids of Central Asian nomadic tribes. Goods, therefore, passed through many more hands before reaching either the east or the west. Though precise numbers are hard to find, estimates show that during the Middle Ages, maritime trade outperformed overland trade. Ships were safer, quicker, and more direct than the overland caravans. They can convey larger amounts of cargo. Fragile items like porcelain were easily transported by ship rather than risking breakage on poor roads. Most of the spices and perfumes sought by Europeans arrived by sea and not overland. It was the monsoon winds that made this all possible. They made it possible for the same ship to travel from Chenzhou to Yemen and back again. In the next episode, we'll examine the great Ming Dynasty Chinese treasure fleets and ask the question why the Chinese didn't find a route around Africa. Links to additional resources can be found in the episode description. Comments and feedback are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. Visit my blog at itakehistory.com and on Facebook at I Take History with My Coffee. If you know anyone who would also enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thank you for listening. Music